If you could have the 100% complete and honest answer to any question this morning, what would you ask? When I was 12, I only had one burning question. And that was, does Jonathan Green have a crush on me? And fortunately, I was a child of the 80s, and so my cousin had the foolproof thing that could give me my answer. The magic eight ball. So I must have shaken this thing 13 times, and it always came up doubtful. (laughs) The truth is, Jonathan Green never had a crush on me. And I'd like to think that that's because early on, God knew that he had Mike Diddy, who was going to be the perfect man to walk with me through all the ups and downs of life, that Mike's best friend, Rob Colwell, would um, be the best man in our wedding, that he and his wife, Christine, would speak wisdom and life into our marriage years before he became an elder here at South. And that if Jonathan Green had gotten in the way, we might not be here this morning. And I'd like to think that it's that well thought out, but the truth is I was a quirky kid and I cut my own bangs, and I'm pretty sure that had a lot to do with it. (laughs) You know, as that little girl grew up, my questions grew up with me. And I just wanted to know why it was so hard to make friends and why I was so lonely all the time. And I wanted to know why, when I finally got my dream job, I didn't actually like it. And I wanted to know why I couldn't make my family look like what I wanted it to look like. And I wanted to know what success actually looked like in my life and how I would know when I had it. And none of those questions could be answered by two words on a 20-sided dice. Today, we're going to rediscover the most important questions that we have and the best place that we can take them. And I think Elijah can help us. Now, Elijah is one of the most beloved, well-known prophets of Israel's history. And if you've been following along the series here at South, you know that Elijah has prophesied a drought that he controlled with his own prayers. He has been miraculously fed by ravens in the wilderness, and then God provided for him again with an unending food supply at the house of a widow. 
that Elijah was the first man recorded in the Bible to see someone be raised from the dead, and that person was raised when he prayed for them. That he called down fire from heaven. If there's anyone who has experienced miraculous provision and incredible answers to prayer, it's Elijah. But that's not good enough for him now. And we shouldn't judge. Because isn't it true for us too? No matter how many times God has provided for us, no matter how many prayers he's answered, when Jezebel says she's going to kill you, you get scared. But here's the thing. We are all going to come face to face with threats in our life, big or small. The threat of failure. The threat of rejection. The threat of intimacy. The threat of shame. The threat of obscurity. The threat of irrelevance. And there is going to be a voice in our head, just like in Elijah's, and it is going to tell us, run. And where we run matters. If it's to our nearest screen, if it's to the nearest bottle, if we put something in our cart, where we run matters. And so we shouldn't judge Elijah for being afraid because what we see is that Elijah runs straight towards God with his fear in hand. Now all of us since we were kids, we've been testing out our world to find safe places and safe people. And many of us grew up in churches where it wasn't a safe place to bring anger when we were angry at God. It wasn't a safe place to bring fear. It wasn't a safe place to bring doubt. But we're going to find that God is a lot more comfortable with those emotions than we are. And if Elijah's like our big brother, he's about to have a really hard conversation in the office with dad. And if we are super quiet out here in the hallway, we can listen in, and they might not know we're watching. That's where we pick up in 1 Kings 19. Elijah runs straight to Mount Horeb, which might not sound familiar, but it's also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the mountain of Yahweh. Any early reader of this text, any Israelite would know that this is the mountain where Moses first encountered the burning bush and was told it was holy ground. This is the mountain where Moses met with God face to face and received the covenant commandments. This is the mountain where Moses met with God face to face and watched his presence pass by. And if we haven't caught on to the fact that this is not just God's mountain, it's Moses' mountain, 
the writer of this text wants to clue us in. Moses has been thinking about his ancestors, and then as to, on his way to this mountain, he wanders in the surrounding desert for 40 days. Just like Moses wandered in that same desert for 40 years. And we're going to find this incredible echo that catches up in these rocks between Elijah and Moses. And that echo is going to answer our question. But before Elijah asks his question, God has a question for him. What are you doing here, Elijah? I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask them, what are you doing here? I don't know why when I first read this verse in the Bible, I imagine God's voice sort of sounding like a troll guarding his own mountain. Like, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I can't quite figure out why I think that I am more polite than God. Because none of us would talk to each other like that. But Elijah answers him in verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. See, Elijah knows that he is standing on Moses' mountain. And that when Moses stood on that mountain to receive the covenant, um, commandments, the Israelites were down at the base of the mountain, breaking the covenant before the ink was dry, building a golden calf, and turning to idolatry before Moses even came back. And so Elijah comes and stands on this same rock and says, isn't it crazy, just like Moses, I'm the only one left, the only righteous one, while Israel turns to idolatry. And Elijah would like to use this mountain to remind God of past failure. If you catch the subtlety, it's not just Israel's failure that Elijah is pointing to. When my husband comes home from work and I tell him that your son <laughs> figured out today exactly how much toilet paper fits in our toilet, it is really clear whose responsibility I think that problem is, whether or not it's true. And I want you to hear Elijah's words again. Israel has not only fallen into idolatry, but they have put your prophets to death, who you did not protect. And if they put them to death, and now they're trying to kill me too, what can I expect from you? And maybe Elijah didn't mean it exactly that way. But I can hear the echo in my own prayers. 
when I was in the hospital and I was waiting for the diagnosis from my CAT scan to determine if I had the same brain cancer that my dad died of. And my two-year-old is tugging at the hospital blanket at my feet. And I have seen so many good people die from cancer. So what about me? What can I expect? And I've prayed this prayer with friends who have been so faithful to God, who have waited so well, but there's still no one to date. There's still no partner in sight. And they've seen other people be single for what seems like forever. So if God didn't help them, what can they expect? And I've prayed with my friend who knew full well that God took the baby that he was growing inside of her. How was she supposed to trust him with the baby that was in her now? What this polite prayer is covering up is Elijah's true prayer. God, you have failed me, and I have watched you fail others. So what can I expect from you now? God understands the significance of this space. And God remembers when Moses stood there with him. So God reminds Elijah of the second time that Moses came up to his mountain. When God invited Moses to stand in his presence. And now God invites Elijah to stand in his presence as well. You see, Moses after he had come back from realizing that the Israelites have already broken their covenant, comes back to God again, and he says, Lord, like, how is this going to work? It's not. Listen, if you are going to leave us, leave us now because we clearly cannot keep up our end of the deal. And Moses has this deep question, God, are you actually going to be faithful to your people no matter what? And God invites Moses to stand in his presence. Moses says, Lord, just show me your glory. Show me a sign. Show me a miracle. Isn't that what we think we need? God says, I'm going to make my goodness pass by you. We think we need to see God's glory. When he invites us into his presence, he invites us into his goodness. 
See, Elijah wants to use this mountain to remind God of past failure. But God is going to use this mountain to remind remind Elijah of his forever faithfulness. Because he told Moses the same thing he's telling Elijah now. Your failure and the failure that you are surrounded by does not determine my faithfulness. You think you need answers, but you need to understand who I am. Come into my presence and realize that I am faithful and I am good, no matter what. Whose failure are you fixated on right now? My husband will never be the spiritual leader of our family. My kids were not raised to make the choices that they're making now. I can never overcome my addiction to pornography, my addiction to food. I've tried it before and I have failed. All of us have enough failure around us and in us to build an airtight case for hopelessness. But God invites us to hold all of that in his presence and to remember that there is no failure that can determine who he is. He is the Lord, full of compassion and mercy and grace, and he is faithful. So when God invites Elijah to stand in his presence, in an echo of this good presence that Moses realized, that, that Moses stood in, we shouldn't be surprised that it looks a lot like the presence that Moses experienced. Except interestingly enough, it doesn't look as much like the presence Moses experienced on his second time to the mountain. It looks a lot like what Moses experienced on the first. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. That is a whole lot of the Lord not being there. But we see that this is what the presence of God looks like for Elijah. There's wind, there's earthquake, there's fire. But God's not in any of those. He comes in a whisper. But remember, we're echoing back to Moses. And so the surprising thing about this is that when Moses went on the mountain the first time to receive the covenant commandments, God was in all of those things. He came in fire, he came in earthquake, he came in billowing smoke and wind. And throughout the scripture, we see God in fire, wind, and earthquake. Those things are sort of trademark God's presence. 
God appears in all of those things to Moses on this same mountain. And then he ends with a trumpet blast to declare who he is. So how do we make sense of that? I think it's actually really hopeful for me. Because there are these trademark places that we know through scripture, through Christian tradition, that God's presence is known to be. We know that the scripture is God's words. We know that when we pray, the spirit intercedes on our behalf and we can meet with God. We know that through spiritual disciplines, we can become more aware of who God is and what he's doing in our life. But there are times when I am angry and afraid and I try so hard to read my Bible because God is supposed to be there and he's not. And I try so hard to pray because God is supposed to be there but he's not. Does that mean that God has abandoned me completely? Look at this invitation. Elijah, you think that you're Moses. You think I'm going to come to you with wind and earthquake and fire. But you just hang out here. Because I know what you need. And you don't need a trumpet right now. And when we are in some of our most broken spaces and we are in a spiritual wilderness and we feel so dry, this gives me courage to stay there. That just because I'm not experiencing God the same way that other people have experienced God does not mean that his faithfulness cannot find me in a whisper exactly where I am with what I need, his intimacy. And we've seen this, this bounce back, this echo chamber that we're standing in with Moses and Elijah. And, and the writer of this passage actually um, emphasizes this again by showing us a bounce back in the actual text. First Kings 19.13 right after God whispers and Elijah experiences his presence, God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? The same way he asked Adam and Eve, where are you? The same way Jesus asked, what do you want? A simple question. And Elijah answers verbatim, the exact same way. Now, I'd like to think that with as much as has changed in the emotional tone of this passage, that Elijah's tone has changed here as well. Maybe it reads a little less like leveling an accusation against God and a little more like Elijah bringing his problem to God. Because God's faithfulness through the ages is great. But down at the bottom of this mountain, Jezebel is still there. And his circumstances haven't changed at all. And so Elijah reminds God that he is alone. 
And God responds to him. And (laughs) this is where we would love God to say, you are going to be okay. You don't need to worry. I am going to keep you safe. But that's not how God responds. He tells Elijah, Elijah, you feel like you're the only one left. Don't you realize that I'm with you and I'm for you? And there are 7,000 people who are still faithfully following me and worshiping me in Israel. And if the mass and the crowd isn't enough for you, I've already identified Elisha, who's going to be your spiritual companion, who's going to walk with you through the rest of your ministry and carry your legacy on. And God wants to remind Elijah that he is not alone. There are people, and there is support, and there are friendships, and there are systems, and there are communities that Elijah has no idea that God has prepared for him. But good things are waiting for him at the bottom of the mountain. And God would like to remind us that we aren't as alone in our hard questions. We aren't as abandoned as we feel. God has been raising up people, prayers. He has been raising up systems and support that you may not have even seen yet, that you may not know are there. But let's not forget that whisper, the most famous part of 1 Kings 19. God's intimate whisper to Elijah. We don't actually know what God said or if the whisper had any words in it at all. But I wonder, I wonder if there was a little hint, a little hint that Elijah, these echoes are bouncing back and forth here in this mountain range. But this is not an endless loop. Because the next time that we see Elijah on the mountaintop, he is standing right next to Moses. Standing right next to Jesus Christ at the transfiguration. The next time that Elijah meets God on the mountain, he is with Moses and he is with Jesus. And they are discussing Jesus' upcoming departure. The cross that nobody saw coming. Not even Moses, not even Elijah. And as Moses holds this question of, God, are you actually going to be faithful to your people on the mountaintop? And as Elijah holds his question of, God, are you actually going to be faithful to me? This time, they are standing next to Jesus Christ the embodiment of God's faithfulness, the embodiment of God's relentless goodness that will stop at nothing to heal us and be with us forever. And the cross is coming. 
the cross is coming when once and for all, God's faithfulness to his people and his faithfulness to us will become unquestionable to the point of death. And you would think that that cross would settle it all. And I believe, I believe that Jesus is the embodiment of God's faithfulness and I believe that that cross mattered. I believe that that cross was meant to pay for my sin, not to clean up my mess, but to make it possible for me to be with God and enjoy him forever. I believe, but God, help my unbelief. Because I still feel alone. And sometimes that cross feel like it was a long time ago. And it feels kind of metaphorical and kind of like a theology textbook. And it just doesn't feel like it can touch the pain that I'm in right now. Jesus will come off the mountain with Moses and Elijah and he's going to talk to his disciples about his upcoming departure too. And here's his promise. I am going to leave you, but I am going to leave you with the Holy Spirit. This cross isn't just a symbol. This cross isn't just a one-time event. This cross is the beginning of a new chapter in human history. We want to tell God that we are alone. And Christ wants to remind us that he is with us. He is with us through the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go onto a mountaintop to meet him like Moses or Elijah. He told a Samaritan woman in John 4, there's going to be a day where you don't have to pick which mountain you're going to go on to meet God. You're going to worship him in spirit and in truth because we as believers carry his spirit with us, which means that the ground underneath the soles of our feet is holy ground. There is no longer a temple because we are the temple. Our very bodies are the meeting place between God and man. God is with us. And this is what he tells us the Holy Spirit is like. It's everything that we want God to be. He gives us comfort. He gives us peace. He gives us direction. He helps us pray when we just don't know how. And we have the Holy Spirit. If we are believers in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. If we can only pay attention to those whispers of goodness, He longs to speak to us. You see, there's this long thread of God's faithfulness and his goodness that Moses gets a hold of on Mount Sinai. And Elijah pulls forward. And Christ 
pulls forward from him. And the Apostle Paul pulls in to the early church. And it is the rope that we are holding on to desperately now. And sometimes we have no choice but to just not let go. To realize that even if it doesn't feel like God is with us, to realize that even if it doesn't feel like God is good, to realize that even if the failure that is around us and the brokenness that is around us and the failure that is in us that feels like it's eating us from the inside out, that none of that, none of that failure can define the faithfulness of our God. And he will be faithful to us no matter what. You know, I, I, I talked about safe spaces and I talked about hard questions. And I hope that we see from Elijah, I hope that we see from Christ that God is more comfortable with our pain than we are. And we can bring it all our pain, our doubt, our fear, our anger, our suspicion that God has failed us and that he is not actually good. And that we can bring it all into the presence of God. And because it is the presence of God, we will be met there by his faithfulness. And if we stay there, we will hear the whispers of his goodness no matter what we are holding. And maybe he'll give us a whisper that is just a little hint of exactly how good he is and exactly the beautiful plans that he has for our future that none of us would dare imagine now. As you go from this place, may you go no less afraid, no less suspicious, no less hurt. But may you go from this place with all of the courage that it takes to take all of you into the presence of God. And when you stand there, may you be met by his faithfulness and his goodness. Amen.